Psalm 16 is a song of trust and security in God for each of us in the midst of our loss and our brokenness. God meets us and the world in this psalm. Hear God's word for you and for me. Protect me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the holy ones in the land, they are the noble, in whom is all my delight. Those who, cho those who choose another God multiply their sorrows. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a goodly heritage. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I keep the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my soul rejoices. My body also rests secure. For you do not give me up to Sheol, or let your faithful one see the pit. You show me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. Amen. Our second text is from the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter, verses 19 through 31. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this gospel. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Well, the text that I read for us this morning, uh, the 20th chapter of John, verses 19 to 31, always show up, uh, always shows up rather, uh, the week after Easter, what we call the second Sunday of Eastertide. It's the continuation of the story we read last week on Easter Sunday, the story of the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. We covered the first 18 verses of chapter 20 last week, and as we press on, uh, in the very first line of this week's text, we encounter one of the most difficult uh, pieces of Scripture, one of the most difficult lines of Scripture that has led, unfortunately, to anti-Semitism within the Christian church and the larger society. That line reads like this, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. This line, fear of the Jews, captures a persistent and dangerous sentiment that has been at play in the West for generation upon generation upon generation. Jews as a whole people group ought to be feared, so the narrative goes. They cannot be trusted. After all, they killed Jesus. They ought to be blamed for his death and also, while we're at it, blamed for any other calamity or natural disaster or plague or economic crisis we may experience. Uh, this sentiment, lamentably, has been fleshed out on the stage of history from the early church to the Middle Ages, to the Reformation, to the Enlightenment, and through the 18th, 19th, 20th, and even into the 21st century. Today, anti-Semitism persists both in the Christian church and in broader society, and we as modern Christians need to be very wise and very measured and very judicious in how we read a text like this one, like the one that's set before us on this second Sunday of Easter. And so to that end, what I'd like to do is engage in a careful and deliberate reading of this one verse, John 20, 19. Typically on this Sunday, you're going to hear a sermon about doubting Thomas. We're not even going to talk about Thomas today. We're only going to focus on this one single verse in the hopes that we not only properly contextualize a text like this one, but on a more global or grander scale that we may discern a word of encouragement, a word that I think is embedded in this text when it comes to what it means to be a Christian in an age like today, an age of tribalism, division, and fear. I think there's a specific word about this context that we need to hear, and I think there's a specific word about what it means for us to be Christians in this age of fear and division. And so I'd like to get started by inviting you to call to mind a particular conflict within your immediate family. Perhaps it's a conflict that's happening right now. I want you to call to mind a conflict within your immediate family or extended family, or perhaps even your friend group. Think about that conflict. Think about how it perhaps has worsened over time, perhaps has escalated to the point that not only have feelings been hurt, not only is there a lack of kindness or forgiveness, 
or understanding, but there is a growing sense that some of the relationships within the system are not going to survive. One of the most fascinating family feud stories of the 20th century took place uh, in Germany between two brothers, Rudolf and Adolf Dossler. The two actually owned a sneaker company that was started in the early 1930s. It was called Gaeta, G-E-D-A. And the company was quite successful, but absolutely exploded after the 1936 Olympic Games that were held in Berlin because the vast majority of athletes wore Gaeta shoes or Gaeta apparel as they raced in that Olympiad. In fact, the great Jesse Owen, Owens rather, wore Gaeta sneakers when he won gold in the 100, the 200, the 4x1, and the long jump that year. Well, as the Second Great War uh, began, the older Dossler brother, Rudolf, was drafted by the German army at age 41, while Adolf, the younger, at age 39, was left at home. The Gaeta factory was forced to shut down uh, and was forced to manufacture munitions and weapons and wartime commodities. And while serving in the German army, Rudolf, the older brother, was captured and imprisoned by the Allies and was eventually released at the end of the war. Well, in 1948, after working together for all these years, really since they were teenagers, the brothers abruptly divided the company in half. They divided the workforce. They divided the assets between them. Now, most can only speculate as to why their relationship disintegrated. Some say that it was an untenable feud between their wives that spilled over into the brothers' relationships. Others say that it was Rudolph's bitterness that he was drafted and that he had to serve time in an allied prison camp while Adolf remained at home. Whatever the reason, there was this deep, catastrophic division between these two brothers. And in 1948, the older brother, Rudolf, started a company called Puma, and the other brother, Adolf, started a company called Adidas, which we in America say Adidas. One factory was located to the north of the city. The other factory was located to the south. Not only did this family experience division and divide and discourse in the subsequent years, but so did the citizens of this small Bavarian village, a suburb of Nuremberg, where these brothers were from and where their businesses operated. You see, residents in the town uh, chose sides. You were either uh, Puma or Adidas, and they divided themselves literally by neighborhoods and schools, and the restaurants that they would eat at, and the beer gardens they would drink at. In fact, the town still today has two soccer clubs, one sponsored by Adidas and the other sponsored by Puma. All of this is to say that, that the division that began with these two brothers, with these two brothers, spilled over into divisions within the entire community that still actually exists today. Now to understand what's happening in the 19th verse of the 20th chapter of John, we have to frame it first and foremost as a family conflict. 
It's a family conflict. It should not be lost on us that the disciples that locked the door for quote-unquote fear of the Jews were actually Jewish. And to state the obvious, Jesus was Jewish too. In a vacuum then, this sentence, this opening sentence of this section of scripture is terribly awkward, right? I mean, it doesn't make a ton of sense. It's as if John is saying that these Jews were afraid of all Jews, which would mean that they'd be afraid of themselves, right? It would be like Jens telling you that he doesn't want to go to the organist convention because he's afraid of organists, right? Or it would be like me telling you that I don't want to go to Lincoln Financial Field in Philadelphia because I'm afraid of Eagles fans, right? I mean, that's how weird this sentence is and how odd it comes across. So because it's so odd, we have to ask the question, is there something else happening below the surface? Is there some other context that we need to be aware about? And I think there is. And one of the things we need to remember is that the Gospel of John was written 60 to 70 years after the resurrection of Christ. And the author is certainly a product of his time. He's writing 60 to 70 years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And so what he's experiencing, of course, is going to bleed into his writing. Even though he's writing about something in the past, he's going to bring his own contemporary sensibilities to bear in telling the story. And what we need to know about this particular time in the first century was that there was a huge rift between Jewish Christians and Jews who continued to adhere to the Mosaic law. The latter began to prohibit the former from even coming into the synagogue. The Jewish Christians were no longer welcome at the synagogue, so they had to start making their own community spaces, mostly in homes where they were able to meet. It's more than likely that the Jews referred to in John 20, 19 are those that maintained the traditional Jewish customs and practices and that this was not some sort of commentary that John was writing about every Jew. Do you follow me? He's talking about a specific group of people As I said, this is a family conflict between two Jewish communities, traditionalists and Christ followers. Even with that knowledge, even with that knowledge, the fear the earliest Jewish Christian community held for the traditionalists, who did kick them out of the synagogues, did implicitly lay the groundwork for anti-Semitism across the generations. What started as a family feud spread beyond the immediate family. In other words, the conflict extended generationally beyond those who were originally engaged in it, just like the Dossler family. The conflict just kept going and going and going, and the narratives kept building and building and building. And from that conflict was born, as it's often the case, demonization and hate and suspicion of an entire people group. In this specific case, it led the church into ideologies and practices of anti-Semitism that regrettably are still present today. But more broadly, as I mentioned earlier, there's a broader point 
This is just one example of how we demonize entire people groups and attach narratives of fear to them. It's not just anti-Semitism. It's all ideological narratives that build walls of hostility and lock doors between people. Uh, Some of you have been to the city of Prague, have seen uh, the Charles Bridge, one of the most famous bridges in all of Europe. Uh, Construction of that bridge began in 1357 under the order of the King of Bohemia, uh, Charles IV. Uh, There are still today, currently, 30 statues that line the bridge. If you've seen it, whether online or you've seen it with your own eyes, you know that all of these statues have a Christian orientation. They're all Christian statues. One statue on the bridge uh, particularly stands out from all the others. It's a sculpture of Jesus' crucifixion. It was originally made of wood, and it was placed there in 1361. In 1419, that piece of art was destroyed by the Hussites. Now, for those who don't know Reformation history, the Hussites were reformers before the Reformation. And so they spoke against the papacy and they spoke out against the Roman church. And as a demonstration against the papacy and the Roman church, they destroyed the crucifix. Because the crucifix, of course, is one of the dominant symbols of Roman Catholicism. It took about 200 years for that statue to be rebuilt and replaced. And during the Thirty Years' War, a war fought between Protestants and Catholics, competing armies actually met on the Charles Bridge to do battle. And as the battle raged on, somehow, people are not sure how this happened, but somehow the head of Christ from that statue got knocked off and fell into the river. All of a sudden, the Protestant Catholics stopped fighting. Some men go down into the river, they retrieve the head of Christ, they bring it back up, they try to affix it back to the statue to no avail, and they pick up their swords and start killing each other once more. In 1657, after the accidental beheading of this Christ statue, it was replaced again. Four decades later, a golden inscription that still remains today, written in Hebrew written in Hebrew, declaring this line from the prophet Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, was affixed to that statue in Hebrew. Kind of an odd combination. The story goes that there was a a Jewish leader in Prague named Elias Bakoffen, and he was convicted of blasphemy, and his punishment was that he had to raise money from the Jewish community to pay for this Hebrew inscription to be placed on the crucifix of Christ. A symbolic uh, humiliation to the Jewish community because, of course, they don't affirm Jesus as the Son of God. But he was forced to declare it in his native tongue, this application of this text to Jesus, which wasn't part of his theological life. Now, just think about it. This is just one story, like one minuscule story on the on the pages of history about the Charles Bridge and everything that happened there where Christians behaved badly, right? Where, where, where Christians missed the mark of the ethics and the teachings of Jesus. The, the family of Christ missed the mark so badly. How does that happen? How does it happen? 
With that question hanging in the balance, I'm, I'm also keenly aware that there are additional questions that emerge from a sermon like this one. Because some of us are thinking, yeah, okay, but what about the preservation of truth? What about the promotion of truth? What about human dignity? What about human freedom? What about justice? What about the suppression of evil? Shouldn't we do something about those things? Shouldn't we act? Shouldn't we advocate? And the answer is yes, of course. Of course the church should be concerned about the preservation of truth. Of course the church should, be care, should care rather about human dignity and justice and the suppression of evil. But we can do that as Christians without making other people the Antichrist. Like we can do that without making others the Antichrist. We can do that without inflicting spiritual or physical or psychological harm on somebody, without creating narratives of fear, without demonizing and dividing so quickly, without locking doors. Let me close with this, this final thought. When, when Jesus appeared to his disciples in that locked room, do you remember what it is that he said? He said, peace be with you, right? Peace be with you. And then he said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And, and how did the Father send the Son into the world? The Father sent the Son into the world in peace, in reconciliation, and what are the things that make for peace? It's not just saying, peace be with you, I'm headed to Sunday brunch. That's not what makes for peace. What makes for peace is loving and forgiving your enemy. What makes for peace is blessing those who persecute you. What makes for peace is sacrificial love. What makes for peace is going the second mile. What makes for peace is gentleness and self-control in speech and in action when we're advocating for the preservation of truth. It's about showing up in places where narratives of fear dominate and we tell a different story. It's about seeing the other as a beloved child of God for whom Christ died and rose from the dead even if they don't believe it. Friends, God did not raise Jesus from the dead and open his tomb so we could lock more doors. God raised Jesus from the dead so that we too could be sent into the world as bearers of peace. May that be the story we tell in and for this world that Christ so desperately loves. Amen.